You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. the privilege of serving in our junior high ministry. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew 7, 21 through 29 from the NIV. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is God's word. Good morning, church. It's really, really, really fun and good to be with you all. Um, so many, so many memories of being, we used to live in uh, Carpinteria uh, 15 years ago when, uh, before we moved to San Francisco and saw the beginning of this building and see so many familiar faces. And it's just really good to be back um, in this area. And um, I send you greetings from San Francisco. It, was, it felt like San Francisco this morning because it was really foggy. And I'm like, I'm home. I am home. Um, we are, we're in the, uh, a series on the parables, and um, I like those, all those emojis. Those are cool. Um, I don't know what one is my emoji. What would it be? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, so we're in the series on the parables, and the parable that Jesus teaches today um, is, a, is probably seriously the, the simplest parable he ever taught. But you have to realize it comes after uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So it comes after chapter 5, chapter 6, and the end of chapter 7 is where we're at. So Jesus said a lot of things about what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, the person who practices my teachings, who actually puts them into practice, is like someone who builds their house on solid foundation on the rock. The person who hears my words, hears my words, and then doesn't put them into practice is like someone who builds their house on sand. And what I want to do today is I want to look at that, and I want you to keep in mind as I'm teaching today, that what, what, what Jesus means by this is, is like almost his whole like canon of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings, if you put these into practice as you follow Jesus, our Savior and Lord, as you put them into practice, your life will be built on solid rock. If you just listen to Jesus and maybe, you know, sing some songs, hear some Bible verses being read, and listen, but don't put them into practice, you're like someone who builds your life on sand. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind as I'm teaching today. 
The other thing I, I want to do is I want to try to frame up this idea of building something. So the first part of my sermon will be building something. What are we building? How are we building? That sort of, that idea that like, do you know what you're building? Because Jesus is talking about building a life here. And the other question I want to ask is, do you know what you're building on? Okay, so do you know what you're building? It's the first question I want to go through. And then you don't, do you know what you're building on is the second question. And then hopefully we'll end where we'll talk about will it weather the storm? Are you ready for the storm? Cool, let's pray. Just take a deep breath and just be in the presence of God. God, you are here, you are with us. Thank you, God, that you desire to tabernacle with your people. This is like the thrust of the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation that you want to be with us. You've created us for yourself and our whole joy is found in you. All our joy is found in you. So as we're here in your presence, would you teach us? Teach us, Jesus. In your name, amen. Our family recently had a pet snail, and his name was Carl. His, uh, he showed up on our lives uh, via lettuce from the farmer's market not too long ago. Actually, his full name is Crawler, Crawler, Eater, Eater. My, my four-year-old daughter, Juniper, named uh, this, this snail that. We, we were like, that's way too long to say. We'll just name Carl. And, um, and he, he came, he, he showed up in our lives through um, lettuce in the farm. I don't know if you've ever been to the farmer's market. And, you know, it's like organic, you know, that sort of thing. So organic that there's like literally living things on it. And, um, and the thing is, my wife, Ashley, hates snails, like hates them. Had a traumatic event when she was a, 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 a young girl squishing a snail with a bare feet and it oozing through her toes. Pretty gross. Yeah, that. But her whole life. So, so I hear this like, horrible, murderous scream from the kitchen, and I'm in the living room with the kids, and I think she chopped her finger off. It's like, I'm gonna go and try to put a finger back on right now. So I run in there thinking she cut her finger off. Come to find out, Ashley found a snail in the lettuce. And it was a baby snail, it was such a small snail, it was like the little snail was still, this little shell was still translucent. And Ashley's like, get rid of it, get rid of it. I'm like, no, 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 let's keep it. Let's like, the kids will love it, let's just keep it. Okay, fast forward, a few weeks, from that moment, and Ashley had fully adopted the snail, like brought, bought him a proper home while he was still alive. He, he, he since has passed because he kind of fell off the counter too many times, but that's a different story. He, and he lived on the kitchen counter. When Carl was alive, my wife would send me pictures of him like she does our kids and our dog. In the middle of the day, I just randomly get a picture of Carl, the snail. And she had gone so far as to trying to discover his gastronomic preferences. Like, he was really into dino kale. Not regular kale, dino kale. Not leafy, dino kale was, not into lettuce, dino kale. And Ash would, and Ash would give him little baths every night, just put him over the faucet and just put him back in his thing and he would eat the dino kale. Like, she was super into that. Now, here's the thing about Carl, though. Here's the thing. Carl never had a sense of his own mortality. Okay, Carl didn't know that his life would end one day. I knew that, Ashley knew that, and because we knew the fleeting lifespan of Carl, we would argue, we literally had arguments about the best life for Carl. What is the best life for Carl? And my opinion was he should live in the backyard with his friends and all, like frolic in the backyard, let him do his thing in the backyard. Like, we don't, he doesn't live on a counter in your cage. 
Ash is like, no, 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 no. He'll get eaten by birds in the backyard. He gets hand-fed kale every night and gives baths, and he lives on the counter, and I get to talk to him and take pictures of him. And like, wouldn't you want to live in a hotel and someone just bathe you and feed you kale all day? I'm like, well, okay, I see your point. Okay, so this thing that we, we knew the, the fleeting life, and we wanted the best life for him, that thing is called, the thing we felt for him is called existential angst. We had existential angst. We had existential burden for this snail. Now, for those that don't know, existentialism is the philosophical idea of meaning, purpose, that we humans know that we have one life to live, and therefore we feel this responsibility. We feel this burden to find meaning in life. We are creatures that long and desire and search for meaning, for our life, for the universe to mean something. This is existentialism. And humanity is pretty unique to feel this way to think this way, to have this existential burden. We don't just have it for ourselves, we have it for our children, we even have it for our pets. Philosophers tell us that what we're all really looking for in religion, in love, in success, in travel, in spirituality, in art, is all, of, is all about this, this like quest for meaning in life. Some even call it quest for salvation in life. See, only humans are aware that our days are numbered that the inevitable is not an illusion, and that we must consider what to do with our brief existence on earth. And what's unique about us is that we don't want our lives to be destroyed. We don't want our lives to be wasted. None of us want our lives to be wasted. So what do we do with this burden? What do we do with our existential angst that we have in the universe? We build. We spend our lives trying to build a life a life that has meaning and purpose, all of us do. At a fundamental level, the parable before us is about this human project to build a life. And what the two people contrasted here have in common is that they're both building a life. To get to this idea, Jesus uses the metaphor of a house. I think this is a perfect and fitting metaphor because you can't build a house without intentionality without some sort of plan. This is a really fitting metaphor. A house implied in like people building a house is implied the sense of home, a sense of place, a sense of shelter and safety. It also has this idea of it, of family. So in the Bible, when, it's, when, when something is a house, like the house of David or, or the house of Israel, it's like a family or a family line or a legacy. This also talks about, it's like, in it, it's like the sense of community and friends and even Um, a sense of society that gives our life meaning. This is all wrapped up in this, like, building a house. These two builders are building a life, and they are intentionally building a life. Remember the metaphor. The metaphor is not about buying a house or finding a house. It's about building a house. It's about making a house. So when Jesus says these two people are building a life, it's it's like an intentional endeavor. In building a house, you typically have plans and drawings and some idea of what it'll look like in the end. And so when Jesus says these two people are building life, he's talking about people who who are not just haphazardly going through life. He's talking about two people who are very intentional in trying to construct their life in a certain way. They knew what they were aiming at, which brings me to my first question, Do you know what you're building? 
Do you know what you're building? In other words, do you have a goal? Do you have a telos, the Greek word for like purpose, ultimate goal for your life? Do you know what you're building? Now, I'm not talking about your goal that you have at your current job or the goal that you have set up for your current project that you're working on. I'm not talking about your goal for 2023 or even your goal for the next five years. I'm talking about your grand goal for life. What do you know? Do you have a grand goal for why you are alive and living? Now, a lot of us, most of us, will have trouble naming this goal. It's because we've never paused to consider our grand goal in living. It's, it's understandable why we haven't. Our culture doesn't encourage people to think about such things. It actually provides us an endless stream of distractions so that we don't ever have to think about our grand goal of life. We make the goal of our lives like the next gadget or the next apartment or the next achievement or the next relationship or the next weekend getaway. We just look for these little things and then we do that often enough and over and over again that we turn 65 or 75 without ever considering our grand goal for living, without any coherent philosophy of life. Now, side note, I'm going to use this word philosophy today. Now, some of you might be like, cool, I, li I, li I like this word, okay? Other people might be like maybe triggered to think other things like, oh my gosh, philosophy is one of the reasons why I almost left the faith in college or something like that, okay? But, but remember the parable. Jesus says this, the wise person built his house on the rock. Wise, wisdom, Sophia in Greek, Phileo is the word for love. Philosophy is the love of wisdom, okay? So if, unless you have a coherent philosophy, and what I'm using this term to mean, what I'm using this, this to mean is, is, do you have a way that you're going about your life where everything has this coherent, it's around this coherent thought or pattern of life? Do you love wisdom enough to build your entire life around it? So I'm going to ask you, if you are a bit, like, I don't know, triggered by this word, like, oh, I'm scared of this word, suspend judgment for a minute, and let me try to unpack that for you. Because I believe that Jesus was a philosopher. He was many things. He was a rabbi, a teacher, Lord, king, savior, all those things. But I believe he came as a philosopher, and I'll show you why in a second. So just suspend judgment for a bit, and maybe to the end, and then, then you can judge me all you want. Okay. One philosopher writes this. Philosopher, philosophy here meaning a coherent way of living, okay? Why is it important to have a philosophy of life? Because without one, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living, instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Some of you, when you read that, might feel something. It might be a bit of resistance, anger. It might be like deep breath, like, oh, oh my gosh. Whatever you're feeling, it's typically, that, that's what we call existential angst. That's what you're feeling. This like, oh my gosh, my life is fleeting. What am I doing? Am I doing what is right? Am I living the way I'm, I, I know to be living? Am I living in a coherent way around some philosophy? That's existential angst. Now, if you don't feel that, let me try to come at it another way. I don't know if this person is canceled or still canceled, but here we go. Um, 
In Will Smith's biography, or his audiobook, if you've ever read Will Smith's biography or audiobook, he says that whenever he starts to study a character to portray them in a movie, the three-time Oscar nominee and one-time winner asks this one question, what do they want? Desire, he says, drives character. It drives a character. What the person wants drives who they are. What someone desires is a portal into the essential truth of their personality. If you want to understand why someone did something, you only need to ask the question, what did they want? By the way, a very popular question of Jesus was, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Stephen Covey, in his very popular book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said, there are only two human problems. One, knowing what you want, but not knowing how to get it, and two, not knowing what you want. What Stephen Covey and Will Smith are arguing is that knowing what you want gives life direction. Now, this is another way of saying what St. Augustine said in the fourth century, that human beings are longing creatures driven forward by our desires and our loves. So Smith goes on to say, to put a very fine point on it, that every word, every action, every association you have can be accurately chosen and harnessed to precipitate your desired outcome. That clarity of mission is a powerful cornerstone of success. So here's my question. Do you know what you want? And is what you want worthy of your whole life? And lastly, are you sure about that? Again, do you feel it? Do you feel the weight of your life? That, again, is existential angst. That, that your existence in this world matters and how imperative it is that you know what you're building your life for and upon. So let me summarize the bad news as explicitly as I can. There is a great danger of misliving. Your phone and the algorithms that keep you on it know this. And said algorithms hope you never find out that you are misliving so that you can keep swiping and scrolling and buying and clicking. There's a famous quote from either the founder or an executive of Netflix that goes like this. Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. That thing. You know what our big, sleep. If we can get people not to sleep and just keep binge, binge watching a new series all the time, that. There are whole industries that hope you have lost the plot of life and that, that exist because you have lost the plot in life. There's that scene in the movie Soul. All my illustrations are Disney movies right now because my kids are really young. There's that scene from the movie Soul where someone's like a big old monster and they, they call it, they're in the bad zone. And like, what, what is that soul doing in the bad zone? And they're just like all self-obsessed and that person's like, oh, just another stockbroker. Another person obsessing about, I need to do this one thing, I need to do this one thing. And it's such an obsession that they become a slave to that thing. They can't see the bigger picture. There are companies that hope you never really know what you want in life, so they advertise to you and sell you what they want you to want or try to hire you by convincing you to help them get what they want. So according to Jesus, we are all building a life 
do you know what kind of life you're building? See, there are two people are building a house. Are you building a house? Or are you just kind of like, oh, I'm kind of just going through life and whatever life has to offer, I'll kind of do. Or is there intentionality around what you want? Jesus is talking about two people that are very, you know how intentional it is to build a house? You don't just accidentally build a house. You don't just go about your day and you're like, I just ended up at Hope and Depot and I just constructed this giant house. I don't know how it happened. No, you have plenty, you lay it out, you know what you're doing. In the same way, just like these two people are actually trying to build a life. But second question, do you know what you're building your life on? These two builders had a few things in common. They both were intentionally building a house. They both listened to Jesus and they both suffered a storm. Now from the outside, their houses probably looked the same, right? They had walls and windows and doors and a roof. You couldn't really tell the difference until the storm came. And when the storm came, it revealed the foundation that these homes were actually built upon. Now, we'll come back to the storm part later, but let's look at what Jesus calls a difference between these two houses. Look right here. It says, Jesus says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now, if you underline in your Bible or you're taking notes, underline that word practice. Puts them, the only difference between these two people is one of them puts them into practice. Again, this is the, the, the crux of his entire teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The person who hears me but doesn't put them in the practice and the person who hears me and puts them in the practice. The person who hears me and puts them into practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like someone who builds their house in the sand. The difference is obvious. Those who put, their, put Jesus' words into practice and those who simply hear Jesus' words. Now, I think... There's, we have to do some critical and crucial work here to unpack what this is because this is, this is oftentimes um, we think Jesus is saying something cryptic here. But it's not cryptic. It's actually really easy. Like, what he means by rock? Is it, no, he means like put his words into practice. It's right there. But we have to do some unpacking there, I think, because sometimes we get, these things get convoluted for us. So let's try to do some work to unpack what Jesus is saying here. I believe that Jesus came as a, a teacher and a rabbi, but a, but a rabbi who was calling disciples to himself, which is strange because rabbis call people to Torah, never to themselves. Philosophers called people to themselves. See, I think Jesus came as a, philo he, as a philosopher, as someone who loved wisdom and was teaching a way of life to get people to live not just by following him and believing in him and trusting in him with intimacy, but then also living out his way of life. Jesus doesn't get enough credit as a philosopher. Philosophy before and in the time of Jesus was the necessary bedrock for individuals and society. Philosophy in the ancient world was like the lodestar, the guide by which humans could experience true happiness and even a vision for life itself. Now, philosophy in college and university today is more analogous to trying to deconstruct everything you've ever believed that was true for fun. That's what, do for, that's what philosophy professors do in, the, in, like, in, in secular colleges for fun. I want to deconstruct everything you ever thought. You won't even know what reality is when I'm done with you. This is fun. And so this is why we get like really scared when we talk about philosophy. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to say that nothing really matters, nothing really is, and there's no reality? That's not what philosophy was in Jesus' day or in the ancient world at all. 
Philosophy in the ancient world was there to provide a way of being in the world that offered true life and flourishing, a love for wisdom. Wisdom is lived out knowledge. This is what is called, they called the good life. Do you want the good life? This is what wisdom was providing, a good life. Jonathan Pennington, um, famous, very famous scholar, um, he has this book called Jesus the Great Philosopher, which I highly recommend. It's a very, very good orthodox book, like Christian, biblically-based, beautiful. He actually opens up the whole book by saying that um, there was a, a fresco revealed from like the, like I think he said like 80, 90 years after Jesus that has a mural of Jesus as a philosopher on it. And this is how people knew Jesus in the, in the early church. But anyways, I digress. He says this, the good life refers to the habits of practiced wisdom that produce in the human soul deep and lasting flourishing. The good life refers to the habits of practiced wisdom. Okay, when you say habits of practiced wisdom, Jesus is saying, do you wanna be wise? Practice my teachings. Okay, hang on to that for a second. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was a philosopher. The great, capital G, the great philosopher. He came to show the way to live life and to live life to the full. He came to show the way that life can be saved and consequently a soul can be saved as well. And when I say saved, I'm not just talking about going to heaven when you die. That is a part of it for sure, absolutely. But that's the thrust of Jesus' teaching. He does talk about that. He actually talked about that in our text. But the thrust of all of Jesus' teachings, even the Sermon on the Mount, was life here and now. How do you live life full of flourishing here on this earth? And how do you bring heaven to earth through his way of life? Going to heaven when you die is not the thrust of the scriptures. It's actually kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Again, different sermon, sorry. The great human question that has been asked throughout the ages has been a philosophical question. You know this, right? This is the question throughout the ages of, of every religion, every philosophy, everything. How do we live meaningful, a meaningful and flourishing life? Basically, how do we build a house on solid foundation? Some people will call this a happy life. Some people will call this a blessed life. Some people will call this a fulfilled life. When Jesus opened his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who, dot, dot, dot. Translated, literally translated, happy are those who. Fulfilled are those who. Blessed can be a little word that we don't have access to because it's like so spiritual. He, the, the word literally means happy, content. Happy are those who. Jesus' teaching, his teachings are how we live fulfilled lives as humans. This is what Jesus come, has come to do. We often think of Jesus, or I think we think of cultural Christianity, and I think we attach that to Jesus. We think of cultural Christianity as like having the answers of like next life questions, like what happens when I die? And we, we have a hard time realizing that the way of Jesus offers actually this life questions. How do, how do I live a flourishing life here and now? We sometimes think we're supposed to be miserable as we escape and await for like the world to come. But Jesus himself said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, I have come to give life 
and give it to the full. If you're new to Jesus, you might be surprised to know that Jesus wasn't just some detached spiritual guru. Jesus was happy. Jesus lived a flourishing life. He suffered greatly, physical pain, emotional pain, emotional disappointment. He died by being tortured at the hands of his enemies. And while it was happening, he was in real time forgiving those who were doing it to him. And why did he do it? Hebrews says it was the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. See, Jesus not only lived a fulfilled life, but knew that through his life and death, he would bring so many others into his life in God that it gave his life deep meaning and consequently brought him joy. Jesus lived a fulfilled and joyful life. If you are a follower of Jesus and a disciple, the a, a better way to interpret disciple is apprentice. So if you apprentice under someone, the whole hope is that you would become like, the, like your master. What do you think being a Christian is? It's becoming like Jesus. That's literally what it is. Now, if you're here, it's like, well, no, that's impossible. No, Jesus made it possible by giving you his spirit. Like you can live like Jesus wanted you to apprentice under him, to become like him, to be sent out to do what he did. This is why he left us with the spirit and said, you are now my body. You are the body of Christ on this world. And so this is very, very important. This is why Jesus says, I'm calling disciples and I'm teaching them to become like me by practicing. Okay, so look at Matthew 5, 1 and 2. This is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, this is how it starts. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is what Jesus does over and over again with his disciples. He's teaching them how to see the world, how to live in the kingdom of God, and make it available for others as well. This is what Jesus did. He goes around, he makes the kingdom of God available to people. He preaches the kingdom of God. And then he calls his followers to live in the kingdom of God and pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. I think your mugs, this series, mugs are this. What is it? Let your kingdom come. You know how that happens? By the power of the Spirit and by God's people in the world? Like, this is why God places in the world that we would, that we would be part of bringing the kingdom of God to bear on the world. This God's kingdom, he does it 100%, but he, do, he chooses to use people. Now, how does, how does this happen? Now, I think um, a good parallel verse to the verse that we're reading today, the explicit Jesus uses a metaphor, but if we were getting explicit about what is Jesus calling us to do, it would be the classic disciple verse. Mark 8, 34 to 37, where it says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it to build your entire house and build it on sand and lose it all? Great was the crash. What, what good is it? Or what can one give in exchange for a soul? Now, what I like to do as we, as we round sec, third base, I don't know, I don't know baseball analogies, but as we, as I, I, wanna, I wanna take that Mark 8 passage and I wanna take that and look that in light of, in light of this metaphor or this, this parable. Remember, Jesus is Savior and Lord and I want you to look at Jesus' teachings as actually being like a philosopher in that he's teaching us a way 
of living our lives. Now, a few things I want to point out. The first thing is this. Jesus is saying that it's very possible to mislive. That's what he's saying in both the Mark passage and the Matthew passage. Right? You can build a house and you could build it on the wrong foundation and the whole thing falls apart. You can go after the world and gain the world and lose your soul. You can mislive. More than that, it's actually rather easy to mislive. Humans have this propensity to go after the whole world. We are just like babies that want to put the whole world in our mouths. My, my son's 18 months old. Everything is in his mouth right now. Everything he finds. You know, if you're a parent, you know that stage of life, but everything, just everything in his mouth all the time. There's like, what do you have in your mouth? He's like, uh, and there's like a coin or like something that the dog like was supposed to be eating or something like that. Everything is in his mouth. We are just like grown up 18 months old that want to put the whole world in our mouths. That's, we want to gain the whole world. We have this insatiable desire to experience it all, taste it all, hoard it all, keep it all, try it all. And because we are creatures with this kind of insatiable longing, it's easy for us to go after the whole world and in the end realize, oh my gosh, we mislived. The second thing I think Jesus is saying here is that misliving is a loss of your soul and a, the falling apart of your life. That house, the life that built, fell with a great crash, you will forfeit your soul. Now, you might be thinking, okay, does it mean eternal soul, eternal life, or soul now, life now? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. You are a soul, which is integrated, like the integrated whole of you, body, mind, spirit. Jesus is saying that, it, that you might gain the world, but your soul is lost in the process. You can build a house, but it can fall like that. What does that mean? It means people who look like they have it all can still be dead inside. Someone who looks like they built their house could build on a set. Do you know that you don't see the foundation, really? Like, we don't see the foundation. We see the house. No one, no one comes over and goes, can I see your foundation? No one does that. You could gain the whole world. What do you see? The whole world. This person got the whole world, but their soul, you can't see that part. The foundation, you can't see that part. And it could be dead inside. It means success, money, sex, houses, travel, experiences, all the stuff we think makes up a good life can't satisfy really the soul deep down. And you might not realize that until it's too late. Remember, both houses look like, look the same before the storm. And the thing about foundations and storms is that you can't rebuild your foundation in the middle of a storm. You can't, in the middle of a storm, going, oh, oh, I get it now. I'm going to rebuild my foundation. It's too late. It's, you cannot, you can't. You could do it beforehand. You might be able to rebuild after, but during a storm, you can't. So, so if you are going through a storm right now, right in the middle, and you're like, I need to rebuild my foundation. You know what you might need to do? You might need to ask God for mercy and grace and go, I'm going to rebuild my life on the foundation that is the rock. If you haven't gone through a storm in your life, now's the time to build. Now's the time to build your life on Jesus in his way and his teachings. The other thing I want you to notice about Jesus is that he wants your life to be saved. He wants you to build your house to where it stands after a storm. He wants that for you. He wants your life to be saved. And herein lies the paradox. On the surface, you think Jesus is asking you to like do something that's hard, like 
take up your cross and follow me. That, that sounds like you want me to die, Jesus. Well, if you look closer, Jesus is actually offering you a way to live. He says, whoever wants to save their life. He's looking for people who want to save their life. He's looking for people who want to weather a storm. A wise man built his house on the rock. Who doesn't want their life to be saved? Again, don't think primarily of heaven here. Think of heaven, but think of this life, here and now. Jesus is offering, inviting us into a life that's truly life. He has come as the one who can show us how to really live, how to really die, and how we can do both with joy. And the problem is, though, we are really afraid to let go. We think that true life is just around the corner, around the corner from the next pay bump. Like, if I just get the next pay bump, then my life will smooth out. Or the next promotion, the next relationship, the next apartment, the next city we live in, the next intellectual achievement. Well, my real life is just around the corner, but we also know that this isn't working because our therapy bills keep racking up at the same time. And the list of wellness podcasts keep growing. Nothing against those things. I love a good wellness podcast and I love therapy. But the reason why it keeps growing and growing and growing is the point I'm making is that we don't think Jesus offers this life kind of stuff. How to live this life with flourishing. We think it's all about next life. No, it's this life. This is the life that, this life, your life right now and the life to come. But the life here prepares you for the life to come. And that's, but again, that's a whole different sermon. This life. The Polish theologian uh, Darius, Darius uh, Karlovich says this, the task of all philosophy, including Christian philosophy, is the therapy of souls who have been led astray by the demands of the passions and false pictures of happiness. The, the philosophy, the wisdom that Jesus is teaching and bringing you into is for those who have weary souls that been led astray by the pat, like your passions, the things you want and desire in the world, and the false picture of happiness that United States or California or the Central Coast has offered you. There's all these false pictures of happiness that we, we see every single day. Every single day, we're like, we have just had that thing. Do you want a therapy for your soul? Jesus and his wisdom. This is what Jesus came to give, a vision of life that's truly life. So how does Jesus do it? Well, he invites us to build on the rock. He invites us to deny ourselves, to become his disciple, to practice his way, like go to Jesus and practice his way of living. Now, this is, this is strange because we misunderstand Jesus. We think that Jesus is, to follow Jesus is all about asceticism, like denial of all the good things in life. I just deny all the good things in life, then, then I know I'm following Jesus. But that's, I think that's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what the devils want you to believe. The philosopher C.S. Lewis, after finally becoming a Christian, writes several really good books. One of them is called Screw Tape Letters. Have you, anyone ever heard of this book or read this book? Okay, so it's, it's satire, and it's written from the, the perspective of a senior de demon writing to a junior demon, discipling of a junior demon on how to tempt the world, okay? So he says this, when the enemy, God, God's the enemy in this, in this satire, when the enemy, God, instructs humans to lose themselves, like deny yourself, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality. This is, the demon's trying to say, this is what God's really up to. 
I want you to keep tempting people to believe that when Jesus calls us to them to deny themselves and take up their cross, they're so afraid of that because they think they'll lose who they are. But in reality, when they, they, they lose the clamor of self-will, God gives them back who they are, but their true self. And this is, this is true. This is what Jesus is after, what he's calling us to. A death like to our self-will, building our lives on things that we think are, are good and right by listening to every other voice around us and putting it all centering it around Jesus, him, his person, and his teachings. And to do this, what Jesus does, in the, especially in the Mark passage on deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, if you want to save your life, you have to lose your life, Jesus appeals here to moral logic, a moral logic that is woven into the very, very fabric of reality, a logic that I think everyone knows is true. And it goes like this. And this is, by the way, this is a lot of the Sermon on the Mount as well, especially the Beatitudes. If you want to receive, like really receive, you have to give. You don't receive by taking. You receive by giving. That's moral logic. That's a paradox. That's moral logic. You don't receive in this life by getting and getting and getting, but by giving and giving and giving. The more you give, the more you receive. If you want to gain inner strength, you have to surrender to something outside of yourself. That's how you gain inner strength. If you have, you have to conquer your desires to get what you really crave. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning, and more often than not, success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. That's more logic. To get sober, you have to oftentimes hit rock bottom and then give up. That's more logic. All of these things are true, and you know they're true. So when Jesus says, give up your life to find your life, he's appealing to this kind of moral logic. It's the very fabric of the, of the cosmos that Jesus himself created. It's important to point out that what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't want you to lose your life for the sake of losing it or even finding it for that matter, but for the sake of being a disciple, for the sake of building your life on the rock. And this is the vision Jesus has for your life. This is why Jesus wants you to come to him Come to him, come to his person to receive forgiveness of sin, a filling of the spirit, and then through that to become like him by practicing his teachings to live this fulfilled, joyful, flourishing life. So I'll end where, where, where we started. That first quote I shared about having a philosophy of life so that you don't waste your life or mislive, I wanna round out that thought. And I wanna add this final quote. Again, Jonathan Pennington says, the flourishing and happy life does not happen accidentally. It must be sought after. And the means of pursuit is the life of discipleship to a philosophy, a way of seeing and being in the world that is pursued and practiced. First, become aware of yourself, then turn away from foolish and non-giving life habits and thoughts in biblical language, repent. And then over time, learn new ways of living through failures and successes in practice. See, this is what Jesus is calling people to in this parable. After all his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, learn to practice. I'm gonna call you to myself and I want you to practice my teachings. And if you do, you're building your life on the rock. This is a vision of your life as a whole life discipleship around the way of Jesus. You can call it a philosophy. You don't have to call it a philosophy a way of living that makes it possible to truly live. And when that happens, 
the storms come, the waters rise, and it beats on the house, and it beats on the house, and it beats on the house, but because you're rooted deep in the person of Jesus and the way of Jesus, your life doesn't crumble. What actually happens is, in some paradoxical way, you're made stronger. You're given more peace. You weather storms. Where you have more wisdom to offer the world, you have more of a depth of knowledge of how Jesus' way is actually the way. Now, you might be thinking, why Jesus? Why, why not? There's all kinds of other philosophers and gurus that I can learn from. There's like Elaine de Bouton. There's Jordan Peterson. There's Phil Stutz. There's Oprah. There's Joe Rogan. And by the way, this is where most, even Christians, a lot of Christians get their philosophy for today. This is where they get how to live. How do you live? Well, just let's listen to Jordan Peterson. That's how you live. Phil Stutz, Oprah, Joe Rogan. This is where we get all our stuff. A lot of people get their stuff from here. Now, here's the thing. They might have part of the truth, like a little bit of the truth. They, they say some true things, but only fractionally. But Jesus is a logos, which means he holds everything together and all wisdom is in him. He is full wisdom, all wisdom. Do you want complete wisdom? It's found in Jesus. Anyone in here own a smart TV? You ever do that thing where you turn your TV and um, you don't know which platform that that show that you want to watch is on? Like, is it on Hulu? No, it's not on Hulu. It's on Apple TV. Oh, no, no, Disney Plus. No, wait, Amazon Prime. I think it was Netflix. And you're doing this and you're thinking, gosh, I wish someone would just like bundle these together. You know, like cable or something? I don't know, it's like put them all in one place? Okay, we are the unbundling generation. We are unbundling everything. Cable, religion, spirituality, bills, we're unbundling all of it and it's not working. It's not making life any easier to manage or go through. Jesus the Logos made flesh, is wisdom itself in a person. All the wisdom of life and the next life in a person and in his teachings. So as we move to respond, let's come to Jesus. The rock, actually, First Peter says, the living stone who's alive, that, can, that knows how to apply wisdom to where we're at right now. Let's come to Jesus, the living stone. Turn to him. Repent if need be. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I want to pray that we would take these, like, your teachings uh, to the, serious to the point of, um, of realizing that being your follower doesn't mean that we earn our place in heaven, because it's not earned. We can't earn it. It's impossible. It's by grace. But it doesn't mean there's not effort involved. It doesn't mean that we don't, like we would practice any other thing to be good at it, that we would practice being a disciple. So we would live this life on this earth in ways that look like the light of the world. And that's what I believe this world needs the most. So would you bless my brothers and sisters? And even as we close with that last quote, um, the, uh, the parts of our lives that don't look like your teachings, could we... Could you show us by your spirit now? And would we spend time in repentance, just turning away from those things? It doesn't have to be super dramatic. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be simple 
acknowledgement and turning to your way and your teachings. In Jesus' name, amen.